Talk with Ben Tompkins. Hey, how you doing, everybody? This is Real Talk. I am Ben Tompkins. We are presented by Nobody Currently. These are the Mixtape Days. And baby, do we got a show for you today. Man, I'm so excited for the show we got for you today because my dude, Colby Hall, comes on and brings it. This guy is a stand-up guy. He's a statesman, a sales veteran, a hustler, a traveler, a man of faith, and he is a dear friend of mine. He currently serves as the executive director of Shaping Our Appalachian Region, which is a nonprofit organization geared towards economic revitalization in eastern Kentucky. After graduating from the University of Kentucky and several years of cutting his teeth in various inside sales roles down in Atlanta, Georgia, his incubation period, as he calls it, he had built up the necessary skills, emotional intelligence, and business acumen to tackle the hills and hollers of Appalachia. He and his team are relentlessly focused on providing fiber broadband internet to the entire region, closing accessibility gaps and providing connectivity to rural areas of the state, allowing residents to compete for jobs on a global scale, small businesses to thrive in e-commerce, and students to receive the best education possible via non-traditional instruction, which has become increasingly important due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Together in a partnership with the Eastern Kentucky Concentrated Employment Program, or EKSEP, They've been able to put over 4,000 people to work remotely since 2015, impacting countless Kentuckians and exponentially improving the quality of life for the region. Over the course of this interview, he drops many quote-worthy insights and takeaways, as well as some of the things he's learned along the way, why he pivoted away from the medical field in college, how studying abroad in Chile and later living as an expat in Ibiza developed his emotional intelligence, how he used that EQ as the foundation of the cold calls he made as a budding salesman, how he eventually got involved with SOAR, and the approach he takes to life each day. This is a special dude and a special episode, so I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode half as much as we enjoyed playing it for you because we had a ball. And if you do, please let us know by dropping a quick rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or on the Facebook page for the show at Real Talk W Benny T. For more interviews and pieces of writing that I think you may like, and if you're interested to learn more about me and my story, check out the new website for the show, www.iridewithbennyt.com. Hey, follow along on TikTok or Instagram at BennyTomp18, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss another episode. New ones drop on Wednesdays, and scrolling back through some of the other ones that we've got in the feed, let me see here. If you enjoy this episode and the topics that we cover, sales and business, entrepreneurship, traveling, studying abroad, or just big picture life lessons and mantras, I think you should check out last week's episode with Kayla Weber Nord on artistry, Kentucky things, and her creative journey. Awesome interview local artist in Lexington, and she is doing big things. She's got a business that she's built for herself, and it was really a treat to get her on the show. The week before that, a buddy of mine and Colby's, another Somerset legend, Amit Patel, on hotels, hospitality, and how to build a business. Tim O'Neill on building products and processes from scratch, dealing with no and the nuances of networking. 
Those are just a few, but honestly, it's like trying to pick your favorite kid. I mean, I'm looking at all of these different interviews that we've done, and honestly, I think you should probably just check them all out because they're all bangers, they all slap, and all of them are excellent interviews with inspiring individuals and storytellers, real people, real stories, real talk. That's what we do, baby. So now that you're tapped in, hopefully you'll continue riding along with me as I continue with my own journey as well. All right, enough of the shameless self-promotion. You guys get it, right? You guys get it. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Colby Hall. All right, I am joined now by my man, Colby Hall. Colby, how you doing, man? Yeah, I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here with you this evening. (laughs) Happy to have you on. It's always cool to reconnect with some old friends, and you're somebody that I've admired for a long time, so... I'm honored to have you on, man. Well, it's uh, it's mutual, and uh, again, I really appreciate the invitation and you thinking of me, and I'm I'm looking forward to having a just a, a conversation, just two dudes, two dudes, baby, two dudes and a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> so I usually start these out by getting your life story. So why don't you tell me about where you grew up? Yeah, well, first, I want to give you congratulations for recently crossing the 100-episode threshold. I was listening to another uh, well-known summer, summer city and Amit, Amit Patel, and uh, I heard the uh, the threshold that you crossed and the recent launch of your website as well, man. So congratulations, brother. Those are two big milestones. Thank you. Seriously, thank you. You got it, man. But no, I'm, I'm Colby. I'm Ben, I'm originally from born and raised Somerset, Kentucky, so uh, the heart of Lake Cumberland, great little town community there. Graduated from Somerset High School, commonly known as the Briar Jumpers. So that that was a, a mascot that was pretty unique in the uh, the scholastic ranks. It's kind of like a bunny rabbit on steroids, so to speak. But uh, we actually funny story about that, Ben. We uh, we had a courtyard at the high school. And uh, we had like an actual live rabbit that was like the mascot called Cecil. And uh, I can't remember what year it was. At my high- I think it was my freshman year of high school. I came out of class and uh, there was a bunch of people like gathering, looking down at the courtyard. And uh, I like, <laughs> went over to it and looked down and uh, Cecil was just <laughs> laying on the ground motionless. And I, oh. I'm not like that. It's, it's sad, but like it's a big rabbit because I think what would happen is he would get fed the extra food from the cafeteria. Mm. And one day Cecil just, he just dropped dead in the courtyard. And it was pretty, it was pretty traumatic for a bunch of high schoolers. So we walked out there and everybody was like, Oh man, Cecil. And uh, yes, I don't know why, but anytime I tell people about the briar jumpers, I think about Cecil and my mind immediately goes to that moment when he just had one too many, uh, too many carrots from the carrot patch, as we called the cafeteria at the high school. Dude, rest in peace to Cecil. He was a legend. He was a good one. Now, there might be like Cecil 4 or 5 now, kind of like Ugga. I'm sure they've got the the backup ready to go. But uh, but no, so I was a proud briar jumper man, a small school, small town, small community. Stayed with me. I went to UK after that, obviously, where we crossed paths at at undergrad. Um, After UK, uh, I spent a year abroad teaching English which was pretty neat. I know you're been, you like festivals and music. It's a big part of, of who you are. I spent a year in Ibiza, Spain. Oh my um, God. Yeah. All, all random, man. I, I had no idea the place existed. You know, you're talking about a kid from Somerset and listening to some country music and definitely nothing house. And so um, <laughs> I put there randomly, but it couldn't have worked out 
could have worked out better, man. Met a ton of awesome people. And uh, that place, it's, I know, I guess I'm biased because I was there, but I got to travel a good bit in Europe. And that's still top down. I mean, hands down, my, my favorite place. And I'm looking forward to making a, a return trip soon. So that was a just an awesome experience. And uh, when I got back from Spain, I reconnected with a connection I made at UK, a company that's actually headquartered in Lexington now called Rubicon. And uh, Nate Morris, the CEO, founder there, uh, was a relationship that I had formed. Kind of was originally on that medical school route. Then uh, coming from a small town when you, you do pretty well in school and you, you take some leadership roles, you kind of naturally think there's like a few paths you're like supposed to take. One of those is medical school. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know. It's kind of just hit me as you get close to it. You know, I did well in the MCAT and everything. It's just, I didn't feel like it was supposed to be what I was supposed to do, you know? And so you, you meet an entrepreneur, or a, a, a guy that kind of opens up your mind to some, some different pathways that you didn't realize were really available and just gave me a lot to think about. And I just kind of punted and said, well, I'm going to go do this in Spain. And when I got back, they were building out their sales team in Atlanta for this new inside sales team. And that was my first job. So when I got back from Spain, moved down to Atlanta and um, now it's the Salesforce tower, which is right in the middle of of Buckhead, and I was on the 16th or 17th floor with like 75 other people. So, just <laughs> banging the phones, man, cold calling, <laughs> selling dumpsters. We were slinging dumpsters, and um, <laughs> it was awesome, though. I met a lot of great people there, and uh, as I'm sure you're well aware, that first job cutting your teeth. I mean, dude, that's what I'll never forget about you. I mean, I reached out and was asking for help, and you went out of your way and. I don't think anything ever came of it, but just the fact that you were willing to help me when I'm sitting there <laughs> figuring things out as a you know 24 year old, 23, 24 year old first job, and uh, that always meant a lot to me, Ben. And I'll never, I'll never forget that because it just, it, I don't know, it just it it made an impact on me. Just the fact you went out of your way to try to help a friend out when you had no idea really probably what I was doing. You just, you just you wanted to be of, of help to a friend, so that was a. That was really neat. Jog my memory and share what that was and what you were doing at the time and how, because I, that's one of those things that um, you never know what lands with people. And I've got so many of those moments where people don't even realize what they did for me, but to you or to me, it feels like this really big moment, right? And I'm struggling. My memory is terrible. It's honestly why I got out of sports. I can't remember anything, but remind me of what what was going on. We were, you know, we were the small SMB, small, medium business team and literally selling trash. I mean, I was calling into communities that um, it's a very sad, it's a top heavy market. So it's a pretty mature industry. So you have a couple of big players in this. But what we were doing is calling in to areas that were working with the two large incumbents and trying to steer business to smaller, independently owned trash haulers. So I think, Ben, what you did, I, I can't remember who, who it was in your family, but you had you knew somebody that had some dumpsters that were potentially uh, able for me to work with and make a sale, quite frankly. And and you put me into contact with them. And I can't remember what happened. There's certain things that franchised or blocked off areas that like you just can't statutorily. It's not allowed. And I think yeah. that might have been a case. But you still made a connection for me that put me into making one of the first sales in my career. And uh, that's just something I'll never forget. <laughs> I love it. I'm, I'd be happy to do that anytime, man. Anytime. So, um, that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. I, uh, 
I remember all those types of things from the people that did that kind of stuff to me. And you do. You remember those people that are willing to sit down with you and have coffee or have a discussion or jump on an hour and a half podcast even later on. You know, it's anybody that shares their time with you and is actually willing to follow through on what they say they can, because people love to tell you what they can do or what they want to do for you, but the people that actually follow through with it, that goes a long way, man. So it's cool to get things full circle on here and just, I if I could describe you, I would say stand-up guy. That's just the way that I think about you. And I want to come back to all of the things that you're doing now, but I actually want to jump back to high school and college and just growing up. You said that there's only a couple of different paths that you saw for yourself or that other people were were showing you. or Because all your life, you've probably heard, oh, Colby, you're so smart. Colby, you're going to go on to do great things. Did you feel a pressure to become a doctor or a lawyer? I, I would say pressure. Uh you know, man, I'm very privileged. I come from a, you know, not a, I never wanted for anything, but I had great parents that um, I was just thinking about it today. I feel like one of the greatest blessings in my life is that not just not wanting for something, but I've always had the freedom to go out and like, whether it's to travel or to do things on my own or cut my teeth, but I've always been able to take like controlled risks, knowing that if something were really to hit the fan or like if I were to really get into a bind, I had two parents that I could call at any time, any point of the day and be like, mom, dad, I need help. And they would come through. And so like, that's been a great blessing to know that no matter what season or phase of life I was in, that I had that capacity to go out and go out on a ledge, so to speak. And it may not be a big one compared to what other people have done, but for me making that decision to know that I could trust that my parents had my back, even though they probably didn't understand it, that they knew I'd figure it out. And if I didn't, they were still going to be there. Like that was great. So like in high school, I just had this great relationship with my, you know, with my parents and they gave me freedom and they gave me the ability to kind of choose what I wanted to do. But one of the things that always drove me was I, I never wanted to disappoint my parents. And so I think naturally, you know, a doctor, lawyer, some of these established paths, that's kind of what we put as the pinnacle more often than not, especially like in small towns, like where you don't have a lot of just really innovative entrepreneurs, for example, or people doing different ways. And there's a ton of people out there making money a bunch of different ways that you'll never hear about either. So I just, you know, the exposure is a little limited, but I felt like my parents always kind of just as, not as soon, but thought that that was like the top for anyone, not just us. And so they always kind of mentioned is that. And so wasn't any pressure or anything. It was just always kind of what I imagined for myself, because I I think that's what I thought I was supposed to do. But to know that you had good parents, I didn't really put pressure. I just knew that I'd do the best I could. And if something didn't work out, I knew they'd be there to help me get back on my feet, if that makes sense. No, for sure. You touched on it, I think, is like the freedom to fail, right? You can go out there and try different things. And at the end of the day, you know that you've got a good support system. And I know you've got a couple of brothers too, right? So, Yeah. 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 Two brothers. One's in Louisville. My younger brother's in Louisville. He's a chemical engineer. And then my older brother currently lives in Alabama, but he's actually about to make his way back to Kentucky, which is pretty neat. So, I mean... Listen, the freedom to fail, Ben, I mean, as you know, 
that's a luxury. Not everybody has that. And um, that's definitely something that I still don't take for granted today because it's a little bit different than high school or college. But like if I were to something really bad were to happen or life happens and it were to be in a way that really put me or my now wife in a tough spot, I know that offer is still there. And now I have two older brothers that are in their career that would probably do the same thing. And so I don't take that for granted, but that's a, that's a really, uh, uh, that's a really big deal to be able to say that you have that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I certainly have had that as well. And it comes with that feeling that you don't want to let it go to waste, that you actually want to do something with it. Because like you said, there's so many people that they don't have that luxury or that privilege. And so that's been my biggest thing, I think, about privilege and going through a lot of these tough conversations that I've had with myself over the last couple of years. And it sounds like you've thought about these things by the things that I'm hearing you say. And I think going through, especially being in Louisville and then especially having these ties to Kentucky, you start to look in the mirror and think about these big conversations that, about race and class and society that we're having now. And I think that the one thing um, or one of the most important things to me about thinking about my privilege is just to do something with it, to not let it go to waste just because I know how many other people would trade places to have that freedom to fail. And whereas other people may have not, I don't want to take it for granted. Yeah. And it's easy to, I mean, I still struggle with that every morning trying to, um, I really think one of the keys to life, not to get, well, for what I know, I I don't know, I'm 29 year old kid still, I feel like, but I I feel like one of the things that I think about a lot is trying to wake up and immediately just feel like a deep sense of gratitude to all the things that you overlook each day. And I feel like our world today is, it is, it's very, um, it's about the next new shiny object that's in front of us and what we can obtain. And it's just this never ending race. And um, for me, and a lot of that, you know, where my roots come from or I, I ground myself is through my faith, but also even faith aside, just being so grateful for like the little things like, you know, health and your age and I mean, not to get cliche, Ben, you know, it's easy to get, but to really feel it, it's one thing to like say it, but to really feel that way and to want less because you already have a lot that you're just not thinking about or counting every day. And I, I struggle there. I mean, you know how it is. You get caught up in the day to day and just the stress and this thing that feels like a rat race. So often you miss that, but I try to start every day with some thought like that, because if I can do that, then you've already kind of won the day, so to speak. And um, I just feel like that's really important for our generation. And ever comes to the point when I have kids some point down the road, I would really want to try to instill that in them because to me, that's like where the appreciation for life really comes from is if you can get that right. You know, it's funny that you bring that up because even just today, I have really just been, not to make this one about me, but just to share with you how, how true that is. Um, you know, I, I'm i bipolar, so I go through 
depressive phases. And today was a day that I honestly did not get out of bed. I mean, I was in bed realistically thinking that this interview was happening at 7.30. So when you texted me, that's why I was like, just give me 10 minutes because I had to just like throw the shirt on and get down here in the studio. But I have not moved today. And it's one of those things that you think about and it's like, things may seem bad and I might be feeling depressed, but what you were saying, at least think about the fact that I've got my health you know, aside from the mental health stuff, but I'm an able-bodied person. If I wanted to get up and go move around and break myself out of this funk, I can do that. And it's almost like I feel guilty sometimes laying in bed for so long because I'm like, well, what if my life was different? What if I were bound to a wheelchair? What if I was being fed through a breathing tube and I couldn't get up and go do the things that I can do now? And I think... That's one of the things that I try and think about as well is just be grateful for what you have because even on your worst day, as bad as things may seem, there's always somebody that's going to have it worse than you. And I'm trying to practice that today. So I, I, I felt compelled to share that just because of you sharing that and just being like, yeah, you know what, that's real talk. Well, and... You know, what you just said, I think about a lot too. And I try to think about it, not like, like the example with somebody that's in a wheelchair, or that's a, you know, paraplegic or it doesn't have use to something. It's when I think of, when I try to, that scenario, it's not like I try to act like, because I have those faculties that like, oh, I'm looking down or, you know, I feel sorry or because that person, they may want the use of legs or arms, but they've got certain faculties, like maybe they have that deep sense of gratitude that I don't, there's something they have that I need. You know what I mean? So it's not, yeah. it's not like physical faculties or health. Like those are like the, the top echelon. I think obviously those are super, super important, but even some folks don't have those. Yeah. They may desire for those, but they also have something that I don't have. And so while I don't even realize that that person that's in that completely different situation, they may be able, if they can hear or whatever the case is, just, have that deep rooted sense of gratitude and just being able to do whatever they can do that day. So I try to catch myself too, because I don't want to like run into a comparison trap because I still just think life is this amazing gift that we all have, no matter how we get to experience it. And the more that we realize that everybody's journey here, time here looks a little bit different. It's not that there's one that's better than the other. I think it helps us not take each moment for granted, if that makes sense. So but Absolutely. I try not to, you know what I mean? I try not to like think, oh, I've got it better than that person because I have this, like it's rooted in a sense of, yeah, that, that they may want this, but I know that they have something that I probably don't even know I want, but they have it. Yeah. So it's just different. Yeah. You, we jumped straight into the deep end sorry, right here. Sorry on, this sorry on that. <laughs> no, hey, I, you know, I love it. Um, Let's just... Stay with some of the deep stuff. What are things that you experienced growing up that have created that deep sense of gratitude? Can you remember times that you were grateful or humbled relationships or things that you've endured throughout your journey that when you think about the reasons that you are grateful that you come back to? First, I want to, I meant to say thank you. <laughs> Thanks for saying that. You, I come off to you as a stand-up guy. That means a lot. Yeah. And um, I, I'm glad. I mean, i, I you know, I really, really believe that one of the things that we can always control, obviously, is our integrity and our character. And nobody's perfect, but 
no matter what kind of day you're having, you can always do what you say. Right. And that's, that's yeah. super to me. And I'll share some love back on you, man. I always appreciate, and I know, you know, I, I don't know because I don't have bipolar disorder, but I know there's some swings, but I always love your positivity and your energy, Ben. It's, it really is infectious and you hear it, whether it's in video or over audio. And that's something that always infects me in a, in a good way when I hear that. So <laughs> I wanted to send that, send that, send that right you. back, Thank right you. back to you. You know, I think the gratitude thing, and I, I'm not perfect at it. I, I try, I, I try to be intentional with it, but sometimes I, I, I'm not. So I don't want you to think I'm the expert on this, but I just think back, I have such a, a deep respect for like my own dad and my mom too, but my dad was self-made. I'm a first generation college student. So, you know, my dad, my mom, they didn't go to college, but I've never, my dad is just so uh, such a brilliant business guy for what he's done. And he's always carried that Teddy Roosevelt mantra of speak softly and carry a big stick. He's always been under the radar, never drawn a big attention or profile to himself. He always did so much good behind the scene, especially like with charity and donations that we would never, we would never hear about. And so he always instilled from us at a, at a very young age or try to do his best, you know, to be thankful for what you have and don't want more than you need the best that you can. And that's kind of who we, the role model for us wasn't somebody that went out and spent everything nor thought he needed to spend everything he had on, on different types of material possessions. So he was a great role model for that. I mean, my mom was too, Ben, she was very selfless. And then, you know, I had a, had a, my dad's mom, my grandmother just had this infectious energy, this infectious, I mean, she was so selfless and caring for others and putting it above her. So I guess I credit that to my upbringing of being very fortunate to be surrounded by people that, you know, again, nobody's perfect, but modeled that in a really, really, um, really, really good way that kind of molded me or helped me grow into the way that I see the world. Can you remember any of the lessons or mantras that they imparted upon you? I would say the one thing, man, and I mean, this isn't, I mean, it's just the golden rule that you treat other people the way that you want to be treated. And um, that's like my anchor to everything. And whether you want to, you know, for me, it's rooted in my faith again, but even outside of faith, just not getting into like where that comes from. If everybody lived, I think by that simple rule of treating other people the way that you want to be treated and doing unto others the way that you want to be done unto yourself. I mean, almost everything could be drawn back to that. And it's, it's such a truly a golden rule. And so my mom said that all the time, that along with, you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. I think we're, <laughs> we're two kind of rules that the things that I heard repeated a lot. And, and I'll finish out with the trio. Sometimes you just have to ignore people and ignore things. You just have to let it go. And uh, I would say those three kind of principles are pretty bedrock. And I've carried those or tried to carry a lot of those with me as I've gotten out to the real world and have tried to to live by those and really exemplify those. Yeah, it's funny. You think about those things to do right by others and to do onto others what you wish to be done to you. And it's almost like we learn these things throughout childhood and adolescence. And then somehow we're all just walking around dealing with unresolved childhood trauma. So inside of every adult is like this harmed, traumatized kid in some, there's a, it's a spectrum, right? Like some people have had it worse. Other people have like, not to minimize anybody's experience, but 
I think the people who walk around and forget that and just haul off and say whatever they want or really just do dirt by others, you know, I, I think those are people that are just dealing with things that they've been hurt before. And then it's almost like a domino effect, right? Like one person feels hurt or slighted and then they continue to put that out into the world. But living life the way that you do and exemplifying those principles hopefully cancels and balances out those people that walk around that don't feel that and it's such a it's it is such a it is such a true like thank you like thank you for being the way you are you know because if it's true like i i do think the world will be a better place if more people try to live by those idioms but that's not the world we live in and so it's even better to come across a real one like yourself. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I don't know if my wife feels like would agree with you all the time. <laughs> obviously, we all have our moments. But even in that example, I mean, you never know what somebody else is walking through. They're, how's the saying go? You either, you're either going into a storm, in a storm, or coming out of a storm. So it's you know one of those mm. three phases of life that you're in. And uh the beautiful part, Ben, is when you live or try to live by those three things, no matter if somebody comes up to you and they wrong you or they hurt you, you can just forgive. I mean, it just puts you in a position to not feel like you have to lash out and live by an eye for an eye, because obviously an eye for an eye, it never stops. Somebody's got to be okay sooner or later with losing an eye. And uh, I think if more people learn to have a little bit more empathy and, and to try to showcase forgiveness, and it varies. I know, you know, obviously it's it's tough and everybody's specific situation is good. But if, if, if some people just learn to let go, that cycle can break. Or if somebody lashes out, like you said, and you don't do something or you handle it with grace and with love to the best of your ability, that person, it may, they may not show it there, but they may go home or two days later, two weeks later, somehow come back to that interaction and being like, man, that's not how I thought that person would have acted when I was like that. You know what I mean? So it's, yeah, you just focus on you and, and try to live by those and whatever other people do, you can't control that. But what you can control is obviously how you respond and how you react. And I don't know, I just try to focus more on that on my end than worrying about what they do to me. Man, this has been like 25 minutes of just straight heat right here. This is just, <laughs> we usually have such a different setup, but I I, I love it. I, I feel like we should just stay with the deep stuff but i i want to i know that we'll continue to to dip back into these depths as this conversation continues to flow but i want to get back on track with some more of the linear storytelling of you and bring this back to you and and kind of recenter here because i want to get more of your life story so let's take it from leaving high school and then getting to uk because you did a lot of things with more leadership positions on campus, I'd say, than most. I mean, you were in student government or you were running for student government at one point, weren't you? And yeah, that's, tell me that's about always, that. I always, always whip out that fun, you know, those like, quite frankly, little unbearable or cringe icebreaker stories like tell us a fun fact about yourself. That's one I pull out often is <laughs> when I ran for freshman Senate and uh, I lost by four votes. That oh. one, that one still hurt. And Obviously, pledging a fraternity, I, I went in there and there were, I mean, I easily found five people that didn't vote. And uh, that one, uh, <laughs> that one, that would hurt because <laughs> I really didn't work that hard, man. I was, we were showing up to those serenading some sororities and I was 
saying, you know, Colby liked the cheese, don't forget me. And I had some – I was out there handing out flyers <laughs> at the old six-pack. Man, I mean, I hustled it pretty good and to, to come so close. I guess there's probably a more important life lesson in there somewhere. So that was one part of it, man, student government. I fell a little short, but I ultimately did get involved. And Dance Blue was huge, yeah. man, as you as you know. And I think you danced a couple years too, Ben, as a dancer. And that's just a, was an awesome – thing to be a part of. And uh, I tell you, man, one thing that was an awesome experience, and it was through Dance Blue, but my senior year, I was able to help organize a um, fundraiser in Somerset to benefit Dance Blue. And I worked with two of the local school systems, they had a rivalry game, and we had probably, probably more at that time, like five or six kids affected by pediatric cancer in Somerset that were treated at UK at their hematology and pediatric oncology unit. And so both schools kind of came together and agreed to do a battle for the ribbon game. And um, we we had a tribute to these kids and it was kind of a true community effort, man. And uh, we raised like 10 grand that night and one night. Wow. Um, and that was a, that was a big deal to me, man. And like, we really didn't do much. We just showed up and we had some t-shirts and we put some like forks in the shape of a ribbon outside the high school and we made some announcements. We had some raffles, but you know, it was really touching, dude. You would see people there that obviously didn't have a lot. I mean, you could just tell and they were reaching into their wallets, man, and throwing in like a dollar or two. And we had a couple of people that were very, very generous that night, but I won't forget those people that didn't have a lot that gave a dollar. That one just hit hard to think about that act of generosity from somebody that didn't have much to spare. And uh, that was a really, I'll carry that experience with me for, I don't know why, it just had a huge impact on me and some of those kids that we got to uh, to interact with. So, but those are my two primary modes of involvement, man, were student government and dance blue. And that, that kept me, that was, it took a lot of time to do both of those right. Yeah, it's funny going back to the time that you would have been running for that position. I don't know why I remember this because I don't remember who was running during my our sophomores or junior or senior years. But for some reason, I remember you on that ticket and I remember the whole Kingston Billis seeing all of those yard signs all around campus and I don't, I don't know why but I just I, I'll never forget that freshman year maybe because the freshman year at UK in that 2012 season was just a great time to be there I always yeah <laughs> you're shaking yeah, your head yeah yeah it was that was a lot of fun did, I, did you go down to New Orleans I did well, back, not back then man back then man were you I remember you being a Louisville fan I know I'm such a terrible person for the amount of times that I switch allegiances, but and UNC, I, I remember UNC, man. <laughs> I'm a child of divorce. Okay, I fear long-term commitment, so I like all these different. T- I'm an Oregon fan, you know. I used to remember I used to go down to Tennessee and watch UK and Tennessee games, and I'm just I'm a mess. But um, but yeah, you know, I I don't like. Uh, here's what it is. I don't believe that you should have to stay in a relationship if the team or your husband or wife or whoever it is isn't going to put in the effort to keep you in that relationship. Like if I grew up a Padres fan in baseball or a Browns fan, I wouldn't be a fan. Like I, at some point I'd just be like enough. Like I'm going to go find another team. I'm done with this. I'm not staying in this. So 
it lends itself nicely when these college teams, like right now, things could not possibly be worse for U of L sports. And I'm really riding this UK wave right now, and I think they're going to win the national championship this year, for real. So, well, that would be great. I got, I got to <laughs> say though, in my in my current role, I do get a chance to um, work with administration at, at U of L, and I, obviously, I know there's been some turnover, but for what it's worth. Anybody I've interacted with at the university has been very good to me and very responsive and supportive of what we're trying to do at SOAR, which I'm sure we'll get to. So I do want to give a positive plug to all the people at U of L that I've worked with. And, um, you know, obviously being a UK grad, when UK and U of L play, you know, no comment, but I, I, I do root for U of L when they're playing other opponents. I'll say that. No one's ever called me out on my own podcast before. So well, I, I was trying to make sure I was my my recollection was accurate, Ben. That's all I was trying to do. There's no judgment, man. We're in a judgment free zone. You see all these different. I got a UK yeah. banner over there, and I've got a Stanford thing over on that wall. And so it's just okay. Let's get back to this. So you did dance blue. Tell people that aren't from Kentucky or didn't go to UK what dance blue is. Yeah, so it's a 24-7 dance marathon where uh, 100% of the proceeds benefit UK's pediatric oncology hematology clinic. So it's essentially a bunch of college kids that raise some money and then they stay on their feet for 24 hours straight. They do not sit down and they're dancing throughout and there's some different programming that goes. But uh, I'm sure you remember, Ben, it's tough. I mean, it's like initially like the first four hours are okay and then you it starts to progressively get worse. And then like by like hour, I feel like maybe 20, you're just so, you're so beat. You don't even feel your legs anymore. And at that point you're kind of immune. You sleep well that night when you're done. But yeah, so I'm, most schools have some rendition of that. I think the patriarch was Thon at Penn state. I think they raised like 10 million plus a year, wow. which is just amazing. I think UK is up above 2 million. I think IU has a, a really a great one. I think U of L has one. I think most places contribute, but uh, was really awesome to see a bunch of college kids kind of come together for a day and uh, make everything not about themselves and what they were studying and different things like that. And so it was a pretty awesome organization and provided some great experiences. Yeah, I always remember seeing the pictures of everybody holding up at the very end the dollar amounts and even the little placards for the comma and everything that go up there yeah. and. Really, really cool. So I personally never danced and did the marathon, okay. but I completed, like I would come and support people. Okay. I remember seeing you there. Yeah. So maybe yeah, that's yeah. where I'm getting. Okay. Yeah. I remember seeing you there. I don't know why I never did, but I just, I don't know. You but showed up though. You showed up to support. So I did. I did. What did you do while you were working with them? So I was my senior year, I was the alumni coordinator. So I worked with the UK alumni clubs across the country and they would usually have like a specific watch party to benefit Dance Blue. So I would mm -hmm. coordinate some of those events and receive like the checks and stuff. And then the the event also worked with some of the local community events, like the one in Somerset that I helped plan and the community executed would go out and show up for some of those because you know, a lot of the high schools would contribute like around Lexington and across the state, which was pretty neat. And so that's pretty much my involvement up to that point. I just danced, but that was my like actual like organizational involvement. And what did you study while you were at UK? I was a biology major. Okay. You were thinking med school at that point, right? I was on that track, man, until it was 
but hard until he pulled the brakes back and was was no longer no longer the case. So we'll get to that pivot, but that pivot happened after you went to Ibiza, right? No, that pivot happened before. So it was like kind of in the senior, my senior year of college, and uh, that's when the pivot happened. And then Ibiza was a an effect of that pivot. And what caused you to start to shift your mindset and your perspective to make that pivot? Dude, I, I think it's just, you know, again, talking with Nate and just kind of realizing that there were all these possibilities out there of, quite frankly, how I could make money and support myself outside of just medicine. I, you know, I just, I don't know. It was like you opened your eyes. I, I don't want to go like super, you super hyperbole here, but like the analogy of the cave when you like, it, it was just like you're open to this entire world that you didn't know was out there. And like, it kind of had like one of those experiences where I was like, man, I just, I feel like I forced myself down this path my entire life, not really thinking that there were any alternatives or given much thought into thinking if there was something better for me. And I just felt like when that hit and I started asking some of those questions and prayed about it a little bit, that it just wasn't what I was supposed to do. And um, pretty grateful that I had that epiphany. I'm not saying I, I probably would have been fine finishing it out, but I think, I think things worked out how they were supposed to. Yeah. So then you end up finishing school and then let's take it to Ibiza because Ibiza, for anybody that has never heard of this place, and honestly, had it not been for that Mike Posner song, I may have <laughs> still been like, wait, where's Ibiza? And, but so legendary party scene and you got to live there for a year. So what was that like? Dude, well, first off, I think I was over there when that song got big. So I actually, I, I don't know if it was 20, I was there fall of 2015 into 2016. Yep. And I think that's when that song, okay, it's a good song. Um, yeah. Uh, no, nothing, I took nothing outside of ibuprofen and in, in, in a <laughs> I can promise you that. Dude, it was such a, it's just hard for me to describe. So I, I had a Spanish minor, so I always, I studied abroad in Chile during college, but always knew I wanted to take a year and like really try to get my language skills as high as they'll ever be, knowing that the rest of my life was going to be a, a steady decline. And so it was important to me. I went through this program. It was through the Spanish government teaching English in a primary school, which there is like from three years old up to 12 years old. So like infant to sixth grade is pretty much the school where I was. And wow. uh, this community, man, like, you know, obviously a visa swells. It's very you know, dominated by the tourism season. So, you know, from April when it, everything starts opening up until October when the closing parties are, it, you know, that pretty much the entire island doubles in size. And then when everybody leaves, it's like a ghost town. So I got to see like the real locals because I worked at the school and um, I communicated. The school reached out to me before I got there. I had, you know, one of the guys pick me up from the airport and it was a whirlwind. My luggage was delayed. I was all out of whack, all out of whack. <laughs> Yeah, you know, one thing that threw me off, I mean, they love cigarettes there. And um, they make their own cigarettes. So they rolled their own cigarettes. And so I got off the plane. I started looking at everybody. And I was like, oh, my God, it, it, is this? And then I, you know, then I realized it was just tobacco. Right. Not, <laughs> not but, but, but everybody. But they, they, they do love cigarettes over there. So, uh, but no, I ended up, I, I had to stay in an Airbnb for a couple of weeks. I had to go apartment searching. I saw on your social media, you were talking about when you were looking for apartments and stuff in the Bay Area. And uh, yeah. it was, I don't know if it's probably not as bad as the Bay Area, but it was, it was tough because you just, you know, I had good language skills, Ben, but like 
dude, when you're over there, everything is so taxing because nothing comes easy. So we're just kind of talking right now, you know, and we're not even thinking about speaking, but like you're thinking about every word and translating. You're just, it just is mentally just taxing and especially at the beginning. And so everything was slow and trying to go online, but dude, I ended up in such an awesome position because the school where I was first off, great teachers still communicate with a lot of them. The kids were great, but it was very family. So like most of the teachers had a kid at the school. So it was just very local. And then I ended up in an apartment with two other guys that lived and work in Ibiza. So it was full immersion. We spoke Spanish. They were so cool. Charles and Luis. And um, I mean, those guys felt like family. I mean, not to, again, not to be cliche, but they just accepted me. And, you know, one of the things that worked to my advantage is there weren't a whole lot of Americans there. So you know, I felt like people naturally were very open because everybody just kind of assumed I was either British or German because I was bigger than everybody. And then their ears weren't good enough. You know, we could spot somebody that's British by how they speak. They weren't good enough to know. They just knew I spoke English, but they could they didn't realize. So when I told them I was an American, their eyes would open up and it'd be really easy to make friends. And uh, they for damn sure never met anybody from Kentucky. And um, <laughs> so that was that was really neat to kind of feel like you're, you know, kind of the ambassador, so to speak, not to get like on my high horse, but that you're like representing a place that had never been represented before. And that like you left, like you tried to do your best to leave a really positive first impression right. of where you're from. And that was really neat. So the experience with like the roommates was awesome. You know, one of the teachers that I worked with lived in the same apartment complex. So I rode to school with her. I mean, dude, it just, you know, if I have one regret about the time is that I didn't, I didn't spend, I traveled too much. I would have probably chilled and, and hung out more in Ibiza with the people that like really kind of felt like my family. And so I think about them often. I've stayed in touch with them. I'm trying to get a return trip. It's, uh, you know, life happens and it's just hard to get back. But dude, that year was, I mean, it changed, it changed my life in such a positive way. Now, like my musical taste, I still like a variety, dude, but you're listening to the positive, upbeat stuff like house i don't know it's just i feel like it's made me like a happier more optimistic person some people probably listen to that and they're like dude you're you're crazy or you're you know that's you know you're you're out there that's fine i'm just telling you it took me a little bit and once i bought in to it i haven't gone back and that's still most of what i listen to dude. Uh, along with a few other things so dude it was an incredible year just an incredible year my life changed infinitely when i heard kaigo and avici and I never, ever was somebody in high school that would dance or think about being the person that I would consider myself to be now. But it just is. It, you, you feel it. And again, just to bring it back to when we were going through UK, levels was such a big, like it, it just took everything by storm. And yeah, you're just like, what is this feeling? And why am I gravitating towards moving? I don't even know what my legs are doing, but... They're moving and I'm sweating now and <laughs> this is awesome. Had you been out of the country before you went over to Ibiza? So I had that, I was in Chile for about three months or 75 days in college and I'd been on a cruise in Mexico when I was little. So yeah, so I mean, it was definitely never for that time, that time frame. So I mean, yeah, but not really, not for the for how intense that trip was in Spain, truly like being on your own and yeah. traveling around and figuring stuff out. Like that was definitely a first. 
Did you know anybody going into the program or did you meet everybody once you got there? Honestly, man, I didn't spend much time with the people in the program. It wasn't like a study abroad trip. Like there were other people there and I, I hung out with them, but I was pretty intentional about like, I wanted to get my Spanish really good. So I didn't try to speak. And it's good because they obviously saw it as an opportunity, Spanish people to practice their English, but for the most part, not in every case, I would say my Spanish was maybe a little bit higher than their English level. So by nature, we would default to Spanish more often than not. Yeah. But sometimes I would just be tired, dude. And I just would talk. I mean, I just was wiped because, you know, you're at, you're at school. That's what you're here. And you go out and you're like ordering lunch. That's what you have to do. The grocery store, everything's an adventure. You come home, the TV's in it. And, you know, there'd just be some days. I mean, I'm, you're just, it's a different type of exhaustion. You just, you're having to battle every second of the day and not even mentioning the, the, the long nights on the, on the weekends getting out and their <laughs> schedule, their schedule for nightlife, man, it, it's way different than what I was used to is what I'll say. What are some of the big places? Like, did you go to the famous, cause there's gotta be like the super famous clubs that are there. Did you? Yeah. Spend so some I made time really, man, and it's a small Island. I made really good friends. So one of the places it's no longer there, but it's legendary. It's called space Ibiza. And I got to know the uncle. His name was also Pepe. That was like one of the Island names was, uh, Roseo, Pepe Roseo. And his nephew's name was the exact same. And, uh, I got to know the younger Pepe. And so we got to go to space and that was one of the legendary ones. Pepe also had a sailboat that he would take us out on, uh, hey. on the Mediterranean, dude, good friends and just good, good friends. And, um, so space is really cool. Pacha is really good. So like if you've ever seen the cherries, that's Pacha. Okay. And um, that one's a legendary. Ushuaia is one of their open air day clubs. So you've probably seen pictures of Ushuaia. That's a really, really famous one. It was fun. Those were probably the ones where we went the most. There was some other ones. There's one called Privilege. I think is technically like the biggest club in the world. Um, it was massive, but hey. Space and and Pacha, those were in Leo. Leo is Leo's <laughs> Leo's like where it's like the upscale Pacha. So that's like Leo Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, LeBron. If those people like your super super famous people, if they're on the island, they're going to Leo. Yeah. So that's sick. What do you think you learned about yourself through a couple that experience as well as your study abroad? So you know, either one, but forcing yourself out of your comfort zone, which is something that not a lot of people do, but being intentional about it and forcing yourself outside of your comfort zone, you learn a lot about yourself. What do you think was the most important thing that you learned about yourself in doing all of those things? So one of my roommates at the beginning, and then he left and he came back because he, he was British. So he would come back and forth. He was a gardener that did really, really well. He just left a car there. And so I got to use, it was a hatchback Volkswagen, but it was British. So the steering wheel was on the, <laughs> the right side. So, I mean, this thing was beat up and eventually it broke down. So I just couldn't drive it anymore. Like radiator started steaming and I had to stop and get water and pour it and like monitor the temperature. So one, <laughs> one thing I, one thing I did learn how to do was, uh, it was manual. It was a uh, automatic, so it wasn't manual, but I, I did get to drive, you know, on the right side, the passenger side in this beat up, in this beat up Volkswagen. But, God. you know, honestly, man, one thing that sticks with me, it's, it's crazy. Like when you're dealing with people that aren't from your background or from your culture, even your language, like 
how far a smile goes in like a general, like lighthearted disposition. And I feel like in that situation, <laughs> there were so many times where, I mean, I didn't know what to say and I was clearly miscommunicating. And yeah, I remember the first time trying to like get chicken from the, the butcher and like they would literally have like whole chickens and I just wanted it like in breasts and like something I could cook easy. And I remember trying to communicate that and it finally, we finally got it right. I mean, it's just crazy how like just smiling and not even saying anything gets you in with people. And I felt like that was something that stuck out to me because it just, I don't know, it just, it just did. And, and, and kind of was the start of a lot of good relationships. So I think that was one Ben, I don't know, man, there, there's so many lessons in there, but your point about pushing yourself outside of the comfort zone, I guess I didn't have another choice. I just had to go. So like, especially when you're traveling and living in hostels, kind of doing that, that whole thing. I mean, you know, one thing that was an awesome story was Barcelona. I met two people from Germany that were kind of younger and they had, there was American football in, in this hostel and I hadn't seen football in a while. So I sat down, they sat down and their English was good. So we started talking and we just got into some deep stuff. Like they're what they viewed Americans as, and they were really, really nice. And we exchanged numbers. And they're like, if you come to Germany, you know, you're, you're able to stay with us. And so like later that Christmas, I was going to Berlin. That's where they were. I messaged them. They let me stay with them, which was awesome. Cause I got another kind of authentic experience. So I showed hey. up, it was cold. It was Christmas and I couldn't get a hold of them. It was snowing and my cell phone didn't work there. I had like a local cell phone. So I had to go inside this bar. They didn't speak a lick of English. So I'm trying to communicate. And I, I used their landline phone to track down these people I was staying with. <laughs> and uh, we showed up. It was like 2 a.m. And the guy's like, you want to play a game of Madden? And I was like, yeah, play some Madden. And uh, they were big Philadelphia Eagle fans. And so, you know, I don't know, man. You know, it just nothing really bad happened. And that's like I look back on that trip and maybe some things in the moment did. But as I looked, there was nothing like it just seemed like everything worked out so perfectly. And uh, I think about those people a whole lot that I got to meet and interact with, but especially the people on that, on that island. And uh, I think just smiling through things when people would say things that, you know, not, not taking offense or, I don't know, there was just always just understanding of people were generally curious and coming from a good place. And I don't know, dude, it just was one heck of a trip. That sounds like it. And I absolutely agree that vibe that you give off because people can tell, you know, you can you can spot that from a distance or through the room and people gravitate towards that and definitely how I would describe you. So and I I relate to that because being in foreign countries, you do. You're you're just trying to communicate in the ways that you know and if you don't speak the language and if you're not that good at it, then how do you show somebody that you're a good person that you're trying to connect with them. You know, it's, it's usually through emitting that smile or just that lightheartedness. And I love hearing stories like that. So glad you enjoyed that time there. Was it difficult to leave? Tell me about the transition coming back to the United States. I mean, like when I was due to leave, not really. Cause dude, I was really craving like a 96 ounce diet Coke. And I just, <laughs> I had to, I had to get back to America for, for mega size diet Cokes. So it, coming back, no, I mean, it was a bummer, but I, you know, I was looking forward to seeing my girlfriend, my wife now, but my girlfriend at the time. And I miss my family. And I knew, like, I tried to tell myself, like, not to think about it, like with beginning and end. Cause like, I knew it had to end. So I was just, 
grateful, trying to be thankful for like the time that I got to spend. And we went out on a really good high note. We had these big barbecues. They loved to barbecue. So we had a bunch of people over and I got to say bye to everybody. And um, so, yes, yeah, so, I mean, it was a bummer, but I knew that it couldn't happen forever. And I felt very, very fortunate. I mean, I'd saved up some money and, and had some means on my own, but my parents really helped make sure I could have that experience. So I knew that <laughs> I didn't want to be that big of a burden on them anymore. But um, yeah. I know some of the people in that program I was in, I wasn't close with them. Some of them are still over there. So some people got like, I don't know how the visa thing works. So my visa was up I and mean, we had like a year of visas. So I don't, I'm not calling anybody out. I'm, I'm not, I'm not ratting on anybody, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was tough, but I was kind of ready to get home too. Yeah. And then like the day after I got back, my dad told me to get outside and weed eat. And I was like, all right, I'm kind of ready to go back now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what was next for you after that? Got back, man, reconnected with Nate Morris, my contact from UK. He told me they were building up this sales team in Atlanta. Just kind of went with it and sat down and had about a week of training. And then it was hitting the phone selling dumpsters, dude. I mean, found a great place in Atlanta. I stayed in the same apartment complex the entire time that I was there. And uh, yes, that was that's where I cut my teeth on the real world was was making about 85, 90 dials a day. And uh, we had a wide open territory at first, but then I started calling into Alexandria, Louisiana, man, and fortunately sold some units and uh, got to meet some awesome people there. But that was, that was the immediate next stop, man. That's where I started learning some of the first important life lessons and dealing with rejection and handling no. And I mean, as you know, sales is just a tremendous springboard for, I think anything that you can do and um, was kind of the beginning of starting to form some really deep emotional intelligence, I think, which is Mm. a really important life trait. But I don't think any very few things train you and develop emotional intelligence like sales does. Can you think of anything specifically that contributed to that belief? Because I agree, by the way, but do you have anything that you can remember as being like, oh, this is a mental chess match that I'm playing with this person? Or even just, hey, I need to know how to connect to people to help them solve their problems, even though they're not asking for my help, but I know I can help them out too. Well, you have to have confidence that you're bringing value. And you also have to have an understanding that you're interrupting people and like they probably haven't heard of you. So they're never rejecting you personally. They're rejecting the offer right? And you try to separate the two. But at the same time, I knew that that next person that I could call, maybe they did need me. Maybe they were paying too much for their trash. Maybe they were not having great customer experience. Like who was I to say? I knew it was probably like one out of a hundred, but I, I would never get to that next person unless I didn't pick up that phone and call and try. So like, obviously salespeople are like anything else, you know, you have good salespeople, bad salespeople, just like there's good, anything, bad, anything, but always came from a place of integrity selling. And that was a, a foundational book that I would read later at my new job. And when you're leading in with good intent and trying to add value and knowing that you're interrupting people and I mean, you just have to do that. And if you're not good at it, you don't last very long because you're living off your commission check. Right? right. And so, you know, eventually that's why it is. Um, if you don't learn to do those things and figure it out, like you don't eat. So you, you have to, you have to figure out what works. So cold calling's never fun, man. Nobody enjoys doing that, but it's a means to an end. And the people that do it well, they do well. And they 
impact and help a lot of people on the other side of that transaction. Um, because I, you know, you never make a sell unless you're solving a pain or realizing a gain. That's the only two times you make a sell. Ooh. And the only time you get there is by reps, man, and conversations and putting yourself out there. Had you had experience selling before? No, that was my first, my dad was a used car salesman. So I was kind of around it, but like inside sales or anything like that. I mean, it was kind of in my family, but no, that was, and truly, man, I mean, until you're sitting down hitting the phones and handling objections and doing it live, I mean, no amount of like simulation training could prepare you for picking up the phone and, and calling a stranger that has never heard of you <laughs> and being prepared for what's going to come out of his or her mouth. When you were making these sales calls, did you have a script or what was your approach to yeah. cold calling? Because that's such a different way to sell things. Yeah, you, you have a script and you have objections that they should know what they are. I mean, if you make a thousand calls, you should hear, you know, maybe four five or six of the same things. But, um, you know, I, I'll be honest, there wasn't like a real like thought out sales methodology or process. I didn't really get experience with like what a, a true like world-class sales process looks like until my later stop. So there it was pretty much you had a script, but you figured things out on your own. So, mm -hmm. you know, you get some feedback and that's not a knock on, on Rubicon. I, I don't think that was anything unique to them, but what Rubicon did have was a lot of great salespeople and a lot of them would take time out of their day to help you out and give you pointers on what worked for them. And so there was a pretty good mentorship component to Rubicon there. And uh, everybody was willing to kind of go out of their way to to help you. And uh, it was a beautiful office, but a lot of it, I mean, and that's good, man. I mean, cause eventually like you just have to pick up that phone and like, just do it, <laughs> just, <laughs> just do it. And that's, that's what I tried to do. What helped you stay in the saddle? Because when you deal with no and you deal with rejection, sometimes it's difficult not to take it personally. You're like, I'm a good guy. Why are all these people like slamming the phone yeah. in my face? You know, but what do you think helped keep you motivated to continue to pick up the phone and, and make another call? I'd say a couple things, man. I'd say, you know, one, I mean, that is what your commission check relied on. So you would only eat or pay rent if you made sales. So, I mean, you have to pick up the phone and dial. It's competition. You wanted to be the person that made, for me, I was always more of a unit guy. I, I wasn't out there trying to have the biggest margin deals. I do believe that like, you don't have to feel bad about making money. Like if you bring value to a transaction, that's when you deserve to get paid mm -hmm. for that. If you improve somebody like you've earned that paycheck, but I always, you know, enjoyed selling the most units. And then dude, it's just a number sales is numbers, especially at that, like inside sales. Like I, there's a, there's a, if you're, you've got a funnel and you know, if you start with X amount of prospects and you connect with X amount and then you have discovery calls, and then you set up a meeting. I mean, there's a there's a process to it. So if you have your percentages down based on like a good amount of data, you should know like how many of these it takes to get to here, and then how many of these it takes to get to here. So you can measure yourself. So like you had to get reps. You know, you could you could be the best closer or, or have some, but if you didn't give yourself enough reps, you weren't going to give yourself a chance to hit your quota. So it's probably all three of those things, man, that like you just had to find a way to go through it and understand that like rejection was part of it. And that kind of like in Cooperstown, right? The people in Cooperstown are batting 300. Like that's not too dissimilar from, from sales. Some of the best salespeople were those that were five to 10% better 
than the average person. Mm-hmm. And it was the little bit on the margin that would separate mm-hmm. like average from exceptional. And the only way you got there is if you hustled and made more dials than the next person. Love that. How long did you stay in that role? So I was at Rubicon for about a year before I moved on. And I took another job at another much smaller early scale series A company that was um, selling an app to restaurants for the back of the house. And that's, I think, where my true sales kind of education happened. And I learned a ton about sales and digital marketing and how like acquisition should be done, like like prospecting customer acquisition and is done well for like a SaaS company. And that's, that's really where I saw how it was going to be done. And I credit my boss at the time for being good at what he did and uh, really showing and showcasing like what it should look like. I'm not saying we did everything exactly right, but from having a process, being disciplined to the process and then holding yourself accountable when you go outside that process. I mean, it kind of came down to those three things. And that really started at that next job. And that's really the thing that I'm grateful for is really seeing how it should be done. Was that in Atlanta as well? Yeah. I was in Atlanta, man, for about five years. So I was there for two years. And then I took my, I I had three jobs in Atlanta. So I three jobs over five years, sales jobs, kind of working my way up. Then I moved back and now I'm in Pikeville, Kentucky, in Eastern Kentucky. Gotcha. And... What are you doing now? And let's also talk about SOAR. Yeah, man, I'm the executive director of SOAR, which uh, stands for Shaping Our Appalachian Region. So we're a regional uh, nonprofit that's broadly focused on economic revitalization in eastern Kentucky. So we cover 54 counties that are considered Appalachian by the Appalachian Regional Commission. It's about half the state. And um, really the heart of SOAR territory, though, are the Eastern Kentucky coal fields. And we were kind of brought into existence then when the depths of the downturn of the coal economy and kind of everybody kind of coming together and being like, oh, we got to figure out what's next. And SOAR was kind of birthed from really that simple question of what's next. So how did you get involved and what drew you to this? Well, man, being from the region, like I've always known my heart was here and I was coming back. So I love my time in Atlanta and like, I met some awesome people down there still have great friends from there. I mean, I met, I I became a part of a great church, had kickball, competitive kickball on Thursdays, man. Like that was the highlight of my week. And uh, it was tough leaving that, but I knew like that was like an incubation period for me where I was developing myself, sharpening my skill set, making decent money. And putting myself in a position that when that right opportunity opened up back home, I was ready to grab it and run with it. So I don't know. I just had this deep rooted sense that I was going to come back. And so towards the end of 2019, the SOAR job opened up and I had a couple of people send it to me and it just felt right. And I went after it with everything I had leveraged, every relationship, every everything I had. And uh, it worked out, got extended the job. And about a week and a half, I was moving from Atlanta, Georgia to Betsy Lane, Kentucky in Floyd County. 
and <laughs> got the U-Haul loaded up, man, and and headed up 85 to US 23, and now we're here. Nice. What a transition going from Atlanta to Betsy Land, Kentucky. I would imagine anytime you're shifting from a city to a more rural area, got to be tough, but what's that been like going from Atlanta to where you're at now? I knew what I was getting myself into. So, I mean, I, um, my wife and I just bought a house in downtown Pikeville. So we recently just moved, but we had great landlords in Betsy Lane. We live in kind of a, a house on the property of our landlords, this couple that was incredibly genuine and just nice and good people. So I think the transition was you know, my wife not being from here. She's originally from Dayton, Ohio, and she got her doctorate and nurse practitioner from Rush University in Chicago. So the first place we met back was in, in Floyd County. So I think for her, and she did really, really well, she through the process, but it's probably a much bigger shock for her going from Dayton to Lexington to Chicago to, you know, Betsy Lane. Then for me, you know, being from the region originally, not to say that like you still don't have some days where I wish I was out there playing kickball, but, um, you know, I came back for the opportunity to have a, a the chance to make a difference and be part of what I think is a, a really important change and upgrade in, in the region that source working on. So I was really focused on the opportunity, but I think it was, I think it was a little bit, maybe more of a challenge for my wife. So what are some of the initiatives that you are working on and what are some of the things when you say that question, all right, what's next for the area? Well, what is next? I think broadband, man. It, it begins and ends with connectivity. It's everything, dude. I mean, what we're doing now, it's economic development, it's healthcare, it's education, it's entertainment. It's just the great equalizer of our time. I mean, even comparing it to rural electrification when electricity came in, I guess that's probably the closest equivalent. And um, if we get it right, man, the beautiful part about the internet is the connection in Betsy Lane, which Betsy Lane has awesome internet, great internet, a great local provider there. It gives you access to the exact same content, resources, opportunities as somebody in Marin County, California, Ben. I mean, it's the same. Yeah. And that's awesome because you can't say that about every every other piece of infrastructure, you know, and it's just, it is, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's, it, it democratizes opportunity. And so that's really big. And there's, there's some places here, some counties that have it done. They've got a fiber to the home. They've got some of the best internet in the country, but a lot also has still have accessibility gaps. So we've got to work and trying to help support local governments. There's a record amount of stimulus and support to kind of solve that digital divide in high cost rural areas and source committed to kind of sharing some capacity to help local governments, local providers, anybody else that's trying to help kind of figure out like what's the plan from all right, you know, who's your group of people that's kind of planning this digital vision? Do you have some data? Do you know like what your current connectivity situation is? Like, where is it good? Where is it not? Like, where is it so-so? You know, where do you want to build out to first? What are your priority areas? Have you quantified the cost? Do you know how much it is going to be there? Have you looked at partnerships thinking about, well, instead of one person or one group trying to do this really, really challenging, difficult job, how can we all kind of play to our strengths and share the risks and the responsibilities and, and the rewards? 
So we're trying to kind of give like a standard process to folks that want to solve this problem. They know how important it is, but maybe they're not sure how to go about it. And so we're trying to lend a hand with that. To be honest, to think about places not having access to internet doesn't even, it, it, it's, it's almost like, how can that be, right, on one end? So for me to even think about places not having the same access to internet is something that I'm having a, a tough time wrapping my head around, that it could be 2022 and there could be places that wouldn't have the same access to information or or the internet yeah don't get me wrong we've made great progress and i got a credit you know SOAR was founded by congressman hal rogers who's the current congressman of the fifth district then governor steve Bashir, whose son andy is our current governor both of them have been champions for broadband connectivity i mean congressman rogers what he's driven and the resources he's shared to the region i mean it's you know compared to where we were five six seven years ago we've come a long way but there's still gaps you know because Ben, it's just a, it's a classic market failure in rural areas with broadband. There's a demand for a good that the private sector cannot provide on its own. And it's just because the math doesn't work out. It's, it's very expensive to build upfront. Your upfront CapEx is just through the roof on, on a project like broadband, mm-hmm. but it's not a monopoly. So it's, it's a competitive landscape, which means that you as a private provider, if you're looking at building out to a rural area, you don't know if you're going to recoup your costs or not. So you're, you're dealing with companies that are having to invest millions in this project and they're, the cost per head, their, their, their customer, their market is just not big enough. They're not able to make the necessary ROI for them to justify that level of investment. And so it's not too dissimilar, Ben. I mean, I bet there's parts of Jefferson County where there's connectivity gaps. If you get out outside of the city or even, even in the West side of Louisville, I mean, it's the same thing. If you don't have enough paying customers, it doesn't justify the investment that you have to put. And that's why there's a lot of gaps. And that's why government and public funds are needed to bridge, to help support where it doesn't make sense in some of these toughest, most high cost areas, the government coming alongside the private partner and giving them the boost they need to make a project feasible, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's, just, it's yeah. economic. And just, I think it's so cool because you think about these themes like globalization where you're competing with people from all over the world, but if you don't even have the connectivity to compete, then how, if you wanted to move out or move up or just move on, could you do that without being able to access that world and know what was possible for you? So I think it's really cool that what you're doing and what SOAR is doing is bridging that gap and providing that opportunity to people because you can make it from anywhere. You don't have to be from a big city to, to be successful or anything. You can make it from anywhere. So I think that's really cool. I mean, look what you're doing, man. I've seen you been on the road. You've been able to log in and record episodes, you know, whether you've been out West or, you know, wherever you've been. And I mean, it's the same for, and, and that's exciting for a region like Eastern Kentucky, Ben, because there's a lot of things that are, are just more difficult here with the terrain and like roads and, and just traditional infrastructure, the amount of land. It's just it's just harder here. And there's a reason why like traditional economic development, it just has it's just it costs more. It's slower. So like as we come out of this pandemic and 
I guess the jury's still out. We're still into this. We don't know like how much of this remote work is here to stay in the long term. I'm bullish on it, man, because I feel like people have gotten a taste of the fact that they can be as productive, but they can still do things on their own time and spend more time with their family and get out and be more active and not be behind a desk. I don't think that's going away. And this was forced. I mean, COVID forced remote work into acceptance. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing the great resignation, which I know there's probably different things going behind that, but top talent, the labor is demanding the ability to be remote if they want. And they prove that they can hit their quota and hit their numbers and produce no matter where they are. And that excites me here in Eastern Kentucky because we have a very beautiful region. I mean, seriously, man, some of these views, you go to Letcher County and go on top of Pine Mountain. It's like you see the entire Appalachian mountain range. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. Some of the people here, the cultural assets we have, food, rivers, trails. I mean, I've seen you, you you're an outdoors guy. You should look at coming to the eastern part of the state, man. Breaks Interstate Park. Obviously, you've probably been to the Gorge, Jenny Wiley State Park, Sugar Camp. I mean, we have, we offer some really high quality of life things. So now the fact that we're not limited by just the amount of economic opportunity that we offer locally so that people don't have to choose between I want to be here, but I just can't make it work to support myself. Mm -hmm. Remote work at least lessens that because if you can find a job online or work remotely with a certain skill set and still have that access to that high paying career, you can live wherever you want to. So it, it puts rural areas like Eastern Kentucky and rural communities in play. And quite frankly, I would argue at an advantage compared to other places. And so if we get that right, dude, it's just a lever we've never been able to pull. And so I'm super excited to be kind of the right timing to push this and try to do what I can to plant some vision. And I don't, I don't think it's a, it's a silver bullet. It'll fix everything, but I can tell you one thing, if we don't find a way to get broadband done, be exponentially the other way. I think everything is going to begin and end with connectivity. Do people realize what you're doing? I mean, is the magnitude, like, do people realize what you're doing for the area? Well, trying to do. I mean, it's not just me. I mean, I've got I've got a great team behind me. We work with a lot of great partners. Um, I can tell you on the remote work side, man, we've actually been a partner. There's another group called uh, we call them EKSEP. It's the Eastern Kentucky Concentrated Employment Program, and they've already put over four thousand people to work remotely since 2015. And it's largely entry level customer service work. But when you're comparing that four thousand people, a lot of them were moving up from part time or minimum wage work into a career that gave them 17, 18, 19, $20 an hour with full benefits to work remotely and have a career path. That's the game changer, man. It's a, yeah. it's a massive game changer. So, so I think, you know, the region's built pretty well for remote work. I think the idea that there's six figure jobs online can still be a little like, come on, man, like that's not real. You know, it's a, that seems fake because it sounds too good to be true. Yeah. Um, but that'll, that'll happen with time. But this isn't this phenomenon we're, we're seeing. I just I don't think it's going away. And I, I think it's only because I think it's good for everybody involved. I mean, I think if you look at some of the survey data, employers get better employees. Employees are happier. Some people want to go in the office. That's great. Let them go into the office. But other people, I mean, as long as the team's producing and people are hitting numbers and culture is good, I don't think it has to be one way or the other. And I think more people than not are going to choose the one that gives them the ability to do things 
that fits them best. And I think that's going to be people that can work from home, be with their family, do things on their own time so that their life doesn't always revolve around work, which as you know, is a super American thing, right? Yeah. Where we, we work too much as it is. Yeah. And I just love that it also celebrates, because I agree with you. I, I think I think to try and put everybody in this box of you need to be here from eight to six or nine to five is just, it's it's dumb and it's dated. And I think this remote and working from home, just the last couple of years have been great because it celebrates individuality. It celebrates the fact that I can be at home or you can be at home and you can still be as productive as ever, maybe if not more, because you feel more comfortable in your space or you're just settling into a better zone, whereas some people, maybe they get anxious walking into an office or maybe they just they feel like they can't do their best work there. And, and I just, I love the fact that it bucks that trend of that and that tradition of you need to be in this cubicle in order to get to middle management and be quote unquote successful, right? I think it's cool that people can be successful from the comforts of their own home and from wherever they're from. Yeah. It's just any company that hired there's the diversification it gives you with remote work. You know, you get on LinkedIn, there's thousands of companies out there that have open roles remotely. And so it, it really helps diversification too, because you're not dependent on one or two or three or four mega employers. And like for small towns, like, one of those companies that has been kind of the lifeline to a community supporting that, like if it leaves, I mean, you, we've seen that happen across history. And so that idea that really your people are your product and that no matter where they're working, they're still staying in your community. I mean, it's a big change. And then you speak to companies and you're saying, hey, if you're committed to you know supporting distressed areas, if you want to help Eastern Kentucky, you know, we no longer need you to just consider coming here physically and investing millions to building a new plant or a new product, you know, whatever that investment looks like. It'd be great. We want you to do that. But how about you just start with those already created jobs that I can see on your job board that say you're hiring from anywhere? What do we have to do to get Eastern Kentuckians that are trained and that are qualified to be considered first for those roles? Because if the talent is the same, you're going to have a much more outsized impact hiring from us because of what that means to keep somebody here or to bring somebody here. And so I just think that ask for companies is much more doable and can happen quicker. It just ha- it can happen quicker because the job's already created. You've got talent that's trained. They're ready to go. You just right. got to kind of play matchmaker instead of something that requires more planning and more money and more time this is something that can get going quickly you know yeah yeah well i hope that it continues to take off i'm sure under your leadership and under the team's leadership that it'll be something that continues to happen and you're making a big difference in a lot of people's lives man and i just want to celebrate your work as much as possible and applaud you as much as possible so keep it up what's next when you think about other goals that you have for yourself or the area or your career? What are some of the bigger things on the horizon that you're also in the back of your mind working towards or some of the levels that you see yourself achieving at some point? Well, man, I just recently got married. So I got married about six months ago. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, So I really, you know, I want to focus on being a good husband too. And I definitely don't have all that figured out, but I, I think that um, 
that's something that's really important to me is, is being a model husband for my wife and how that looks every day. So I, I definitely think that's something that's not going away. I'm, I'm sure at some point, you know, I, I don't know what the timing is, but having kids one day is something that I'm, I'm looking forward to. You know, my brothers, my older brother has one and another on the way. And my wife has two sisters that have two newborns. And so I don't think we're too far away from that. So like personally, I'm, I'm looking forward to those things. Just buying a first home, man, we're really enjoying being in a new place together and kind of right downtown. So we're being able to really feel like we're part of the community and going out and walking outside and Pikeville has a, has a really beautiful downtown. You know, as far as professionally, man, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's next. I'm, I'm really trying to wake up and cherish each day. It's hard, man. I mean, I appreciate you saying that, but this work is hard. The beautiful part about sales in the private sector was it was very white and black. Man, you knew what you were producing and you knew what your goal was. And I mean, you could slice and dice it and analyze it, but by the end of the month, if you weren't there, that was not good. So it was just, it's very clear how to measure your performance. And this, it's just, it's just a little more gray, you know, like it's a little more gray thinking about like, are we measuring the right things? And if we are measuring the right things, like how much of this do I actually have control over? It's like, I want to evaluate myself on things that like really matter. Things like population growth and wage growth and all these things, but like how much can Colby Hall and SOAR, the small resource team that we have, how much of that can we actually move and focusing on that and trying to be it? So, you know, it, it's difficult, man, but I kind of thrive in that challenge. It's fun. It's easy to wake up each morning and get to work and whether it's writing grants or thinking about new programs or ideas or supporting my team and trying to be the best boss possible, talking with you about things tonight and kind of getting deep and taking the time to reflect a little bit. I don't know what's next, but I, I just, I'm really trying to enjoy this for what it is. And um, when I get overwhelmed a little bit, man, or I feel like I don't know where to go I, again, I just, my prayer has kind of been, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm waking up, I'm clocking in, I'm going to bring it each day. I'm, I'm going to do my absolute best and I'm going to let you guide this ship and put things in front of me that I need to tackle and help me say no to the things that don't. But either way, all I can do is like really try my hardest and bring the effort and the hustle. And that's what I'm going to do. And the rest will fall in place like it should. And it took me a little bit to get there here because you, you try to do too much at the beginning, but I feel kind of at peace because I feel like that's always what I can control is like that intent and how I approach each day and what I bring to each day from like an effort standpoint. And very rarely do I feel like I go home and feel like I've left something out or like left something on the court. You know what I mean? Like I, I left it all out there and yeah. um, I'm just going to keep doing that until whatever the next thing is. And it'll happen in due time. You're just preaching to my soul right now, man. I'm with you. I'm with you. We're going to wrap up with, uh, give me your realist talk. The one thing that you want everybody to know could be a life lesson, a mantra, the realest thing that you've learned about life or people or faith or business or anything, but leave us your realist talk. Well, I guess I'll say two things. And this is just where my mind went to immediately. One, local leadership matters. So in my role being at the ground level, working with a lot of like county and city leadership, I think one of the things that sucks about like politics today or that there's a lot of focus on like what happens in DC and like the federal level. And I'm not saying people should be plugged in, 
but a lot of that can so divisive it's quite frankly a distraction from like what's happened in your local community and i think the true servants and public servants not true because you know we have good leadership at those levels too you know starting with with congressman rogers who's, who's been really good to me in my role but like local leaders like those positions matter you know school board city council people those affect your day-to-day -day life if you're in that community more than anything else so if you're frustrated with how things are going, I would suggest that you turn off the TV and you show up and you get involved in your home community because that's by and large where things are really gonna change. So I don't know, that's one thing. And then the second thing I'll say, Ben, is just going back to that golden rule, man, like if we try to just simplify and uncomplicate and unwind life and its complexities, I think we'll always find our way back to just treating other people the way that we want to be treated and trying to live to that standard. Mm -hmm. And if we judge everything through the lens of that, like all the stuff that seems gray, it kind of comes to light and a little bit more. And it's, it's simple, but it's, it's not always easy to do, which is like, that's how, you know, like you have one of those really like good platitudes because something that's, maybe easy to understand, but hard to execute on at some times. And so I just think in this supercharged environment that we're in today, if more people took the time to kind of internally just focus on whatever comes in front of me, I'm going to do unto that person or that thing the way that I would like to be due unto on. I don't know. I just feel like things might get a little bit better each day. So I guess those are the two things I'll, I'll leave. That, those might have been underwhelming, but those are where my mind went. Absolutely not. For everybody to do their part i i love it man thank you so much for your time this has been so awesome i'm so proud of you i'm so happy to see that your career and the things that you've been manifesting and working towards are really fulfilling you you know i just i look at you and hearing you talk about getting the house and being married and just the impact that you're making in that community it really does matter and I am just so proud to know you and to be your friend, man. So please keep it up. And I hope that everybody else has enjoyed listening to this as much as I've enjoyed sitting on the other end of it, man. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me, man. I, I can say all the same things about you. I'm going to be looking forward to watching you grow and uh, your grind that you've been putting in, man. I know sometimes you're down in the trenches. It's hard to see it, but uh, you've got a fan in me. And if there's ever anything that I can do for you, I'm just a, uh, a LinkedIn, Instagram, and now a text message away now that I have yeah. your, your new blue message up. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're good to go there as well, man. So thanks for having me tonight. I've had a lot of fun. All right, guys, that's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. This was a really special one, and I'm really glad that after all these years, my buddy Colby and I have stayed connected over the years, and man, I was certainly not expecting that to start the way that it did by him sharing just that selfless act of me being willing to put him in touch with somebody and just those are the little moments that never really dawn on you when I guess you're like me tossing so many assists left and right and you don't even stop to think about it really and the thing is sometimes those little selfless acts you never know what they might do for somebody what doors you might open for somebody what new possibilities you may enable somebody to go and reach or realize and getting to hear that gratefulness and, and, and 
thankfulness for doing such a small thing it feels like right just like hey yeah i'll put you like no problem of course i would you're a stand-up guy of course i would vouch for this fucking guy right it's just one of those things man it's just one of those rewarding moments in life and along this journey that i can do that and that i continue doing that week in and week out and that i will continue doing that shit till i fucking die baby that's what we do the glue guy over here just dishing assists left and right i love it i love it that's what i get a lot of joy from you know that's really what i get a lot of joy from and getting to have people on the show like my guy colby that is also what i really enjoy doing with my life so i hope that if you enjoyed this you will share it with somebody that you think needs to hear this episode as well somebody that you think would enjoy this episode please share it with them takes two seconds just boom share it send it and subscribe to it so that you never miss another episode that we're doing new episodes come out on wednesdays and i would really appreciate it if you would take just two seconds of your time i know your time is very valuable and you've given me enough of your time on this episode right here but if you would just give me two more seconds please please and drop a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, I would really appreciate that, man. That is how we grow the show, and that is how we let these people know that I ride with Benny T and this kid's slinging real talk. So I hope you'll join us next week. We got a great guest coming up, and there's plenty more where that came from, my friends. All right, that's it. I'm back next week. I am Ben Tompkins. That is Real Talk.